no matter how angry somebody is, no matter how sad they are, no matter how depressed, no matter, I won't waver. And therefore they can rely on me because how they feel isn't going to change how I show up. And I think that was like the best gift he could have given me because to this day he does that. How do you create an unshakable business? I crossed $100 million in net worth by the age of 28. Now I'm growing acquisition.com into a billion dollar portfolio. In this podcast, I share the lessons I've learned in scaling big businesses and helping our portfolio companies do the same. Buckle up and let's build. I'd love to start where you grew up and especially for, for a British audience, like how would you describe where you, brought, you, you grew up? Like, I, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't even know what Vegas was like until I was like 20 years old. I didn't know what it would look like. So yeah, what, what was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Portage, Michigan, um, which is like a small Midwestern town. Midwest, different from the West Coast in terms of like people are very friendly. You all know all your neighbors. Um, typically, if you grow up there, you end up staying there, getting a job there, starting a family there. Um, not as many people, I think, are venturing out and leaving and going to the coasts. Um, and it's definitely a different kind of mentality. It's slow. It's much slower than where I live now. And so everything is slower paced, more family focused, obviously also safer, um, less to do. And, you know, it's funny is that I just remember my entire life when I lived there, always thinking, I can't wait to leave because it felt too slow for me. And out of all the amazing places that you could live in the country, not even just that, but the world, I was like, why here? And I, I think I felt that for a very long time, which is why I did end up leaving. The thing that gets me like with your story, is, and this is what I'd like to try to get across to the viewers, is do you think you were born, do you think you were born with this sort of ambition to grow outside of the situation you were in? Or was it something that happened within your childhood that led you to that place? I don't think that I was born with anything. Uh, I mean, I would tell you, my dad would say differently. Um, but I actually think it was when my parents ended up getting divorced when I was, I think I was between eight and nine, uh, when they separated. And my dad ended up moving out, getting an apartment somewhere. My sister ended up leaving, going to college. because She was much older than me. And then I was stuck alone with my mom in the house when they had left. And then my mother very quickly, because of the divorce, and then very quickly after their divorce, um, her dad passed away. And she just went into like a very dark place. And she turned to drugs and alcohol. And I witnessed that from day one. Like the like starting to drink more than like drinking every day and then like starting to drink earlier in the day and then like until it snowballed into like a complete alcoholic. And so I actually think that that time in my life and living with her for the five years I did when she did that was probably the pivotal moment that turned me into the person I am today because until then I had been sheltered by two really amazing parents who meant well. But I also think I was very sheltered um, and dependent on them. And in the time that I spent living with her when she was an alcoholic, you know, she wouldn't come home for days on, on end. She would come home and be incoherent. She would 
not talk to me, ignore me. She'd always be with a boyfriend at the time, uh, in and out of the bars. And I had to learn to take care of myself. And at the time, it was extremely hard. And I remember just a constant perpetual feeling of stress, like in my body, like not being able to get rid of the feeling of just like complete anxiety. Um, because I was always worried about her. I was always worried, is she going to be okay? Is she going to end up killing herself today? Is, you know, is she going to end up coming home? Am I going to be on my own? Like, what am I going to do? Um, but what I didn't realize was that going through that for those five years taught me how to take care of myself and ultimately that I could rely on myself, which at the time, I don't think I could have known that it would do that for me. But now looking back, I see it as like that was the moment in which it, I would say, um, it was almost like a, it gave me the jump start to get to where I am today. Because I'm not sure that I would be able to be the leader I am if I hadn't learned how to lead myself so early on. Could you pin it though? Could you pin down the the trait that you had or some the, the thing that you had? Because I, you, I think you was 10 years old. I, I, there's a tragic story I remember you saying in one of your videos about where you you was calling for her and it happened on multiple occasions, but you'd, you was trying to call for her and you couldn't get a hold of her as a 10 year old. Um, most 10 year olds, I don't think would react in the same way as you did. Like, is there something you could pin down that led you to be able to do that? Yeah. I was sitting in our guest room. Uh, I'm sorry, when you said it, it's just like, I was sitting in the guest room of our house and I, I thought she was dead. And so I kept calling her phone and I think it was like the 20th time that I called and she didn't pick up. And then I remember thinking to myself, why do you keep calling? She's never going to pick up. She's not going to answer. And I sat there and I remember thinking, holding the phone in my hand, I said, I'm not calling again. I'm done. And then I just thought to myself, this thought popped in my head and I said, I need to make the rest of my life so good that it makes all of this worth it. Because the pain I felt in that moment and for those years was so great. And it was also a secret I kept to myself. I didn't tell anybody because I also still loved her and I didn't want to get her in trouble or whatever that meant. But that was what stuck with me was in that moment, I thought to myself, like, you have to be so good that it makes everything worth it. And I think I took that on with me in that now when I go through anything in life, I just think to myself, Make it worth it. Make the dark moments worth it by doing yourself justice and getting to the other side and getting through it and not being a victim of those dark times. I don't know how a kid at that age had that thought, but I'm super grateful I did. And I remember it crystal clear. I remember holding the phone. It was one of the phones with like a huge cord and it was like yellow banana phone, basically. Um, and I remember just sitting there, it was 3 a.m. and thinking that. And from that moment on, I felt like a sense of calmness because I thought to myself, one, no longer am I going to keep calling. She's going to leave. Who knows if she's going to come back? I need to focus on myself and I need to focus on making my life better. And then the second thing was it like lit a fire inside of me to be better because I feel like in that moment I saw, you know, she was a great mother to me when she was, but I saw her turn into this person that I felt was so unfamiliar to me. And the only thought I could have to myself was like, I will never do this to somebody. 
I never want to do this to anybody in my life and make them feel this way. And so I think what it did was that it propelled me to go in the complete opposite direction that she was in. And then I, it led me to, you know, finally getting out of her house and saying, you know what, I'm going to leave because she would say, you know, if you leave, I'm, I'm going to die. If you leave, like I have nothing left. It, my life will be over. And so it felt like, you know, in a way a threat, like, what does that mean? Your life will be over. You know, she wasn't stable. And I said to myself, I'm not your mother. And I remember the day I was like, I'm leaving and I'm not, I'm not coming back because at the end of the day, this is really harsh to say, but I said, if you die because of me leaving, it's not on me. I have to take care of myself. And that was kind of the mentality I took from that point out. And she didn't end up, I think, getting better, but I haven't remained in contact. I mean, so at what age did you leave her? I was at 14, 15. Wow. So, and, and the, so there was a, a five-year time period, was this, from when your parents divorced, going through that sort of process? So during the time in between, I, I stopped staying at the house. I started, you know, if you've talked to like childhood friends, like I end up staying with them. I had friends' parents who knew the situation with my mom and I would basically live at their house. Like I even did chores at one of my best friend's house. Uh, they would buy groceries for me. Like it was like I basically lived there and I would come home to get, you know, clothes and things like that. But I kind of checked out. I was like, I'm just going to do me and take care of myself and not be around this. And I would come back, you know, every week or so to see what was going on. And usually the house was disgusting and I would clean it and then I would leave again. But I just tried not to stay there because I didn't feel safe and I didn't feel like I didn't know who she was anymore. You know, it wasn't the mother that I grew up with. And so I didn't, I didn't want to stay there because I felt like I created my own family <laughs> within my friends' families. And I think that is the truth is like, I think she was so absent at that point in time. I felt like I had to go get what I needed elsewhere. Alcohol is so destructive. And I, I think, um, I mean, our, our family suffered with uh, my my father was like a really bad alcoholic, but he wasn't in our lives, so it didn't really affect us. But like, I remember I had a phone call with my grandmother one time. I didn't, she was the sweetest lady. never realized that she was alcoholic. She'd been alcoholic whole life. And uh, and I got a, a, a phone call about, I'm going to kill myself. And, all, you know, all, and it's, I could only imagine like what that would be like to be living around that with a parent. It must be so difficult. Um, and I, I'm still like, I, I wish it was easy to pin what, the ingredient was that allowed you to grow out of that situation because so many people through tragedy or difficult times and traumas it feels like they do go one or, or the other way you know they either fall victim to it or they don't become a victim and they come much stronger for it i think there was a quote i'm, I'm gonna mess this up because there's, there's so many moments in your life where you was probably handed a hand and you just went the opposite way and it was like you guys like i'll i'll show you guys wrong but there was something you said, um, if I can't find it, I'm just going to butcher it. That's okay. So maybe I'll just butcher it. But it was basically like, I'm going to work as hard as I possibly can so that for the future, that the past is just the past. And it's so, it's so far behind me that all I can see is the future. Can you talk about that mentality? You know, I heard this statistic at one point where it was like over 50% of the past that we remember is inaccurate. And once I heard that, 
this like light bulb went off for me because I think I was probably like 20 or 21 at the time. And people were always telling me, you've got to resolve things with your mom. You've got to figure out these things. And like, I'd been to therapy in and out and talked to plenty of therapists and life coaches, all these things about my mother, right? And I constantly felt like it was just reopening something that I would never find a resolution to. You know, it's like, it was, she became an alcoholic. She didn't mean for it to make my life worse, but it did by consequence. Do I think she's a bad person? No. Do I think that she, you know, created bad conditions for me? Yes. And I just realized that the more that I focused on working on my future, the less the past had power over me and the less relevant it was to my life. And especially knowing that, what, 50% of it could be made up. I'm like, what if it was better? What if it was worse? I don't know. You know, this is my memory and my recollection, but I don't want to live my life beholden to a past that might not even be true. It's just my perspective. That to me was the main thought. It's like, why would I let that control me when, you know, our minds do very powerful things? It's like, I don't know in what direction it was amplified, you know, but right now, allowing me to think that things were worse than they were, how's that going to help me make a better future? It's not. And so I just went heads down and like, I'm going to create such a compelling life for myself that I don't even think about the past. And that's worked for me for the last 13 years. Normally I'd stick to sort of the documentary stuff, but I have to pick up on this because it's really close to me. Um, so around seven years ago, just before Mulligan Brothers started, like the whole YouTube stuff, my son passed away. And my way of dealing with it was to do this. And I, you know, I, and I head down, was obsessed, still am, but was obsessed. But I would say two years ago, there was a point where everybody around me was telling me how, you know, it wasn't great for me. I need to go to therapy, all this kind of stuff. So I did, and it felt like I was just churning up, and for a good year, churning up this thing and bringing all this, like, this stuff back. Now I'm back heads down again, you know, and I'm, I'm focusing forward and just cracking on, and I feel better than ever. But the opinion of people with that kind of mentality is that it's just wrong. It's not the right way to do it. It's, I'd love to hear more on it. I mean, there's a lot that we could go into there, which is like, it's also like, you know, there's great waitresses and there's awful waitresses. There are great therapists. There are awful therapists. How does the person in the room know to judge? Oftentimes they don't. And so I think a lot of people fall prey to people that create dependency on them. You know, I actually think in studying what I have, which is in studying like some of the best, you know, psychiatrists and therapists from 100 years ago, um, most therapy should only take six to eight weeks. And I think that we created a culture in which people are dependent on therapy so that they can keep coming back and they get recurring revenue. So I look at it more as like, that's a great business model for a therapist. Is that good for the patient? Probably not. Also, through a lot of the things that I studied, I just realized there is also self-therapy, which is that you can therapize yourself. Now, who I've studied the most for this has probably been Albert Ellis. I've read like all of his books. Um, but I think that what I've realized is that you can change how you behave despite whatever happened to you. And so most people say, let me figure out why this happened. Like, why are you so upset about your son? Of course you're upset. What the hell? You know what I mean? Like, of course I'm upset that I'm upset. What the hell? Like, that's normal and okay to be that upset. But is there anything that can be done about it? It's like, no. And then I think that people tend to demonize maybe the way that we feel afterwards and say that there must be something wrong with you for feeling depressed. 
that's baffling to me that people would think that there's anything wrong with feeling depressed or anxious or, you know, like you have something wrong with you. Because I think when we feel like the true depths of negative human emotions, we do wonder if there's something wrong with us. But that's just life. And I think that we live in a society where people label it as there's something wrong with you. And I think I actually fell prey to it for a few years where therapists were telling me there was something wrong with me. And I, you know, after that, I kind of took a step back. I was like, I think there's something wrong with you because you're labeling me, you know, and I'm doing all these things to make my life better. And you keep telling me why it shouldn't be and why it's okay to feel this way and keep reopening these wounds. And I just noticed it wasn't helping. But what did help every time was that I focused on the future and I changed my behavior and I didn't allow anything that's ever happened to me in the past to be a reason of why I behave a certain way today. You know, I could easily say, oh, I don't get close to people. I've got walls up because my mother was an alcoholic and so I've, I'm a little colder. What? I'm a fully functioning 31-year-old adult. I can decide to act in a more productive way in my relationships. So what happened when I was 14 should affect what happens when I'm 31? Like, what happens is that an event occurs and then oftentimes to deal with that event, we take on unproductive behaviors and then we don't stop and they go on for 10 or 15 years. And then we say, well, in order to change this unproductive behavior, I should figure out why this thing happened to me and put reason behind it. And I've just found that what if I just changed the unproductive behavior and it didn't matter why I was doing it, but I changed it anyways. And so I think that's the kind of approach that I've taken to things is I look at it very much like, I am not in control always. We don't choose the thoughts and feelings we have some days. Like we can choose to focus on things, but can I choose if it pops up in my head? Like, no, um, I can observe it and try not to focus on it. But what I can do is that despite what I think and despite what I feel, I can change my behavior. And that has been like the one thing that has brought me relief in everything because I can feel as bad as I want. I don't have to act that way. And I think that I've gotten a lot of relief from that, but I don't know. For me, it felt very unproductive talking about all of those things because I think that a lot of them also are predicated on, I think that, imagine this, right? Somebody dies and you live in one of the you know, Western or Eastern uh, Indian countries, right? They celebrate death and they're happy and they're overjoyed that those people are dead. And then they move on and go on with their lives. Here, we're told it's a bad thing and we should be sad. And therefore, people grieve for months, years, decades. And so when I hear that, I think to myself, it's all, in a way, expectations, societal norms, and almost the placebo effect. You know, I remember when I broke up with a boyfriend and then I moved across the United States to California and a therapist told me, she was probably the only good therapist I've ever had, um, I said, I just, you know, I, I just can't get over him. I'm just so sad. She's like, well, how long has it been? I said, two months. She's like, how long were you together? 14 months. She's like, why are you still sad? And I was like, well, I heard it takes like half the time you've been with somebody to get over them. She said, I think that's Layla. And in the moment, I was stunned that a therapist would say that's And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, it takes however long you decide it to take. Start living your life again. And that frame I have applied to pretty much everything because I have just found that continuing to think about things that don't make our lives better just tend not to help us. Definitely. And I, I, I heard you say that as well about the, the ex and saying that, that 
you just decided. And I love that. And I think it, it, it does feel the same for me. Like that's exactly what it felt like. Like I, obviously I'm sad. Like, don't, like it's, it's terrible. Like I feel sad, I feel devastated, but I don't need to be there forever. Like I don't need to wallow in that and let it, you know, affect my life massively. But it was true. Like a lot of therapists would tell me that, you know, you need to explore this. You need to explore your feelings, your emotions. And, you know, I think they try, if there is, like you say, a behavior, they try and fix what that is when, um, the, the inciting thing, the thing that incited the behavior, you can, you don't, it doesn't need to be attached to it anymore. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think it was the conversation how with Lisa Bill you, I think there were so many like nuggets in there. Again, I'd love to go over them. That one was a huge one for me. There was another one. Um, again, like I don't, I don't want to butcher these, but this, this was the, uh, I really, I really liked this one and it was, it was based on anxiety. And, um, if you have anxiety, like I, I want to talk specifically about when you first went on stage, but like just away from that, like you said, you don't have to feel great when you're stepping into a boardroom or onto stage or whatever situation it is, you don't have to feel great. You can accept that. And once you've accepted that, it makes it easier. It's not to feel perfect the whole time. And then you kind of work your way through it one step at a time afterwards. That mentality I think is, another thing that stop not having that stops people from doing it in the first place, taking those steps. I think I found for me that the more that I try to get rid of a feeling, the more I feel it. If I'm feeling frustrated or I'm feeling angry or I'm feeling anxious and then I think, oh, you shouldn't feel this way. I don't want to feel like this. Let me go do something to try and not feel like this. I actually create more of it because I think I'm just guessing. It's like I'm telling myself it's not okay. And therefore now I'm stressed about feeling stressed. I'm not just stressed. I'm now stressed of feeling stressed. And so for me, I've just found that what has worked best has been I accept that I'm going to feel awful. And I can get really good at feeling awful. In fact, I think that I have mastered feeling awful. And that's what people don't get. They're like, how do you do all these things? I'm like, I'm really great doing anything, feeling awful. Like I can speak on stage while I feel awful. I can lead a meeting while I feel awful. I can do a presentation while I feel awful. I can run a book launch while I feel awful. I can do all these things while I feel awful. And I think that most people, when they feel awful, act awful. They stay in bed. They act depressed. They act how they feel. And what I have found is that that just compounds the feeling of bad, whether it's stress, anxiety, or awfulness, grief, etc. You feel more that way because you behave that way. For me, what I've found is that, one, eventually I will start to feel less awful if I stop thinking about it and I start doing the thing, right? Because I'm going to be more focused on what I'm doing than how I'm feeling. And then second to that is, if I can do something while feeling awful, how easy is it to do it when I feel good? How much more skilled will I be at that thing? And so that's, I've looked at it in that way, which is like, I... I seek out to do things in imperfect conditions because then when there are perfect conditions, I have an unfair advantage. I don't feel awful today. I got a full night's sleep. I'm prepared. Amazing. This is going to be a, a cakewalk, you know, because I'm used to being up all night the night before, being stressed, not being prepared because something was last minute and doing it anyways. And so does it feel good in the moment? No, but it creates a sense of confidence that then turns into a feeling of trust with myself. And that is something that is worth so much more to me than feeling good every day. 
because it will be hard whether you want it to or not. And you never know what to expect. Things can just come out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, it's just like, this is what it is. Like, we're going into a really hard season. And I don't ever want to go into a season like that in my life feeling like, I don't know if I've got my back. Can I do this? I want to know, like, there is insurmountable evidence that I can do this. Do you enjoy performing in the chaos more than performing in, like, a nice situation? Enjoy? No. Find useful? Yes. I think it is more useful than performing when things are going well. So you don't, you don't get off on, you know, it just being mayhem? After the first step. I think that it's still hard to do things when you feel awful. But I know, I'm like, if you just take the first step and you just commit to this, it will feel easier for the second step. And so to say that I, like, I'm hungry for it and look forward to it, like, yes and no. Like, actually, I'm like, oh, I wish I could just, you know, not have to do that. But then the other voice inside of me is like, this is what makes you who you are. This is why you're going to be better in other situations. This is going to make you a stronger person. You're going to have more trust in yourself after this. And then that makes me excited because I think, again, <laughs> how do you make a bad situation worth it? You figure out what good can come from it. And I think that is what I look forward to is seeing how in months or in years, me showing up in those situations will apply to future situations that I didn't even know were to come. Yeah, I, th I think being able to perform, like you say, at that like, kind of level with that kind of chaos going off, then when it is a little bit calmer, you know, you're going to kill it. Um, I do want to try and dial it back a little bit into the, the story just to make sure I've got this there. Um, there's so many interesting points to choose from, but I think the, the early days, the, there's a great story around Subway. I think, I, th I don't know whether it's been covered too much, but I do, I would love to hear it again. Um, but I, I also am interested in um, if, it, if it intertwines with that, that story. Was there, at that point, a belief in your head that you were going to be somebody, that you was going to achieve something? And if there was, did it come from anywhere in particular? I don't think I ever, in my early days, had a belief, oh, I'm going to be somebody, Ooh, whatever that means. But I think that the mentality I had was, don't stop until you are. Do I believe that I can get there? At that time, no. But did I believe I could work harder than anybody? Yes. I believed I could and you know, work harder than anybody's relative. But I think I knew that I could put in the work to at least have a chance at it. Um, and I think that was the one thing that, you know, I think I got that from my dad. You know, he was an immigrant. He came from Iran. And I've watched him my entire life. And he has tireless work ethic. And he always said like, you don't have to be the smartest, you don't have to be the best, but like you can work harder than everybody. And he's like, that's the approach I've always taken. And my dad is a fantastic person, but I believe him because I think he does outwork everybody just because he cares and that's part of who he is. And so I think seeing that, I think was a really great example for me because early on, after I got out of the house with my mother, that was my mentality, which was just like, work on yourself, work on being better. And that's when I got my first job. And I, I got my job, uh, it was at Subway, which I could walk to from my house, uh, from my dad's house, because I moved in with him. And at that point, I think I had like my driver's permanent. Um, so I couldn't actually drive a car yet. So I knew I could walk. And I was like, well, that's good because one, I can get exercise when I go there and back because I was trying to get in better shape. 
And then two, I can have a job, right? And they were one of the only places that would take somebody that was not 16 yet. And so that was my first job. And it was purely to make money. I was just like, I need this money to save up to buy things I want. It was just, that was it. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to work so hard and all these things. I think I just accepted that I need to start from the bottom because I remember being embarrassed at times. People would come in, I'm like a Subway sandwich artist. I'm making their Subways. And I'm a girl also. There's more men that worked there. And it was the Subway right next to my competitor high school. So all the football team would come there and get subs or all like, you know, and so it was a little embarrassing at times. Um, But I think it was really good for me because what that job taught me to do in the beginning was, and I think this is a skill, but how to follow directions. That sounds silly, but there are so many people who you can give directions to and they don't follow them. And I think that I learned in that, at that job, that that is a skill because I saw all these other people that were working there get fired because they wouldn't make a sandwich correctly because they wouldn't do the opening or the closing correctly, like simple things, but they are skills nonetheless. And I'm grateful that I started there because I think it was humbling and it wasn't glamorous and none of my first jobs were, Um, but they taught me things that in the moment I didn't realize were important. And I look back on now and I can pinpoint everything I gained from each one. Yeah, there's a quote by Steve Jobs, again, like not word for word, but the dots will connect looking back like when and it does it you don't know going forward but yeah. i think we we've had it with mulligan brothers and um all the jobs we worked like labor like laboring jobs and all this kind of stuff and there's so many different things and i think the biggest one is honing work ethic for us was a was a huge thing like i'm gonna load more bricks than anybody on site that's just what i'm gonna do because that's what i do like and there wasn't i don't think there was a reason i didn't get paid more for it but it just felt like that was the thing the how, how valuable is work ethic and how far can it take you? I think that in the beginning, it is probably one of the most valuable skills you can have. Because when you're just getting started, oftentimes it's not that you lack one skill or even two, but you might lack three or four or five skills. And the only thing, in my opinion, that can get you past that wall is having the tenacity and having the work ethic to be able to do all at the same time. Because even when you take on a new job, say you take on a new business, whatever it is in life, usually we have a learning curve. And what I think a lot of people miss is that it's a learning curve on multiple skills at the same time. And that's when things feel really hard. Why do most people fail at building a business? Because it's like 10 skills at the same time. And most people can work on two, but they can't work on all 10. And I think that that is why I believe work ethic was such an imperative part of my journey because... I think in realizing, for example, when I was losing weight, you know, I lost almost 100 pounds when I was uh, 19, 20. And that process was, it's not just that you're starting to work out, but you're also learning how to cook food. You're also learning to measure food. You're also learning to, you know, not eat at party. Like, those are all skills, you know, and I, prior to this, I was in fitness and nutrition. So I could tell you, all those things are skilled. Not taking food when people ask, not finishing food on your plate, skill. Counting your calories, a skill. Knowing that there's calories in soda, skill. These are all, like it sounds crazy, but they really are. Remembering to weigh yourself every day is a skill. Measuring yourself with tape is a skill. They're all skills. And so I actually think that that translated a lot when it came to business because it felt like this insurmountable task um, that was very hard and it was a very steep learning curve. But once you get over the hump, 
it feels inevitable that, that the outcome is going to happen because it starts to snowball. And I think business is the same way. But a lot of people can't get past, I think, the first year or two years of the learning curve. They just quit. They say, it's not working for me. You know, I've been working my ass off for a year. Go another year. You know, I think that a lot of people don't realize that they're accumulating, maybe in that first year, they've accumulated two skills, but they need two more to be able to get what they want. And they just, they just aren't willing to wait it out. And so then they go and try something else or they go and work on something else, but, but they don't realize that they just, what they actually have to work on is expanding their capacity for work more than anything. I'm going to have to come back to that at the end for the, the business, because uh, I think we have just used work ethic to get to where we are. And it's like, I know obviously like you're on this insane level with teaching higher level people. Um, but I, you, I think that, that start section, you, you guys had to do that at the start. Like you had to go from work ethic to structure and all these other things. And it ebbs and flows. Yeah. It yeah. depends on the season you're in. So yeah, I'd love to talk about that. But the one thing that comes to my mind, 100 pound weight loss journey. One time, it was a mo one of the most embarrassing. There was two, two kind of stories that happened to me at a very similar time period in my life. I'd put on a lot of weight after my son had died and uh, unhealthy habits. I was over 100 pounds overweight and um, I was walking down the streets and I'd, I'd bought like a, a carrier bag of fries, like in it's, it's got chips in the UK and I'd, I'd smelt them whilst I was walking home like a fat person. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> someone screamed out the car, you fat bastard to me. And I was, I was bigger at the time as well. And it, I was really like taken aback. And then I went home, looked in the mirror, I was like, flipping heck, you're massive right now. And then, and then I, there was another story a week or so after where a friend's mom who hadn't seen me for years was the same thing. She said, Jordan, what happened to you? And you had this like story, this pivotal moment um, where you was at a party and a similar thing happened, but you took it as a positive and you managed, again, it was like, F you guys, like I'll show you guys. Did, did that last, you know, the, the, yeah. And that was it from that point on. Can we hear about the story? Yeah. And just sort of yeah. what was going through your head when it happened? Yeah. So when I was, I want to say I was 19, I was really overweight. I think at that point I'd gained, gained like 80 something pounds. It was to the point where it's like, I can't even find a picture because I completely avoided a camera. Like there's one, and it's just my head and it's pretty bad, but that's it. Um, and I remember I was at, it was the weekend of my friend's birthday and she said she wanted to have a party and she was going to invite a bunch of people from high school. And immediately I just felt like a complete sense of anxiety wash over me because I thought, oh my gosh, I looked so much better then, you know, but I've like spiraled into gaining all of this weight. And I felt like, oh gosh, I really hope I don't run into anybody. And so the weekend comes and, you know, it's the start of the party. I think we're pre-gaming whatever, people are coming in, nobody's saying anything, right? And I'm, it's like this big, for me, it felt like an elephant in the room. Like, hi, I haven't seen you since I gained 80 pounds, right? Like, I am aware of this. And nobody was saying anything. It was all going as planned. Like, it, it felt fine. And then it was probably close to the end of the night and I went to go to the bathroom and I walked through the hallway and there was this guy that I'd been friends with in high school who was there. And I saw him and I was like, oh, hey. And he was like, hey. And he was like, man, such a shame. And I was like, what? And I just like in that moment knew he was going to say something. And he said, it's like, dang, he's like, it was so crude. Um, but it was like, it's really just a shame because like you used to be so hot, but you're just so fat. 
And I was like, wow. And in that moment, all I felt was like white hot, like your eyes see red, you know, like white hot rage. And funny enough, it was not at him at all. It was completely at myself because my first thought after he said it was, I agree, you're right, I would. And it was like, I couldn't even be mad at the guy because I'm like, what are you doing, stating the facts? Like, I'm aware as well. And I left early and I went home and I just felt so compelled to do something. I remember I got on Facebook because Facebook was cool at the time. And I made a post that was like, I'm done. I'm, I'm done partying. You're not going to see me. I have to go work on some things. Like, I'm out. It was just this ominous, very vague post. And that was the day I woke up the next morning and I threw out all the food in my house that was junk. I literally drove to Planet Fitness, joined Planet Fitness Gym. And then I said, I'm done drinking. It was like in that instant, I made this decision where I thought to myself, it just felt like it was a deviation from the path I was on, being that overweight. And in that moment, I felt like, am I going to let this get worse? You know, is, am I going to show up two years from now at a party? What, what am I going to be, 400 pounds? Because like, if we continue to go down this path at the rate I've gained weight, that's what would happen. And that thought when I had that, where I was like, what if I were to show up in that many years? And be, what, what's stopping me from that? Why stop now? You keep gaining weight, what's going to stop? And then I just thought, it was so unacceptable of a thought to me. I was like, that cannot be my future. It was so terrifying that I, I felt like I had to immediately change in that moment. And that's been something that's served me so much throughout my life, which is like, there are times when incremental change makes sense. And then there are times when there's so much inertia in one direction, the wrong direction, that I think you need to just completely put a stop to it and in that moment, that was one of those. I was like, we need to go snowball in the other direction. And so instead of like, let me just slowly make life, I was like, screw it. Everything goes out the window today. New Layla. I am no longer who I was. I am now this new person. You eat well. You don't hang out with people who drink all the time. You don't do drugs all the time. And you work out. And it was really hard and terrifying because I had not been out of shape before. But going into a gym, being overweight, was so hard for me. Like walking in there, feeling like everyone was staring at me, feeling like I was out of shape, you know, saying no to all of the social things I'd been going to and drinking at, it was really hard for me. I didn't know how to say no to people and say like, that's not what's best for me right now. And then basically I, I ended up actually moving out of the house I was in because I lived with uh, five, six other roommates in a house. And I felt like that environment is not one that is conducive with the future that I want. And I don't think staying here is going to help me reach my goals. And so I moved out and the last, I think year and a half that I was in college, I lived by myself, which is like unheard of, you know, especially for a woman. Um, but I just didn't know another way that I could like cold turkey stop. I needed to change my environment. You've got these moments in your life where you've had like these inflection points where you've had big changes. I think you've you referred to them before as like rock bottom. And I think with, there's a, there's a story of your sixth arrest 
what I would love to maybe talk about, like maybe the first arrest, like what was one of those moments like, like, was that a moment where you realized it was getting, it was too much or was that, did, did they just sort of happen as they came along? You know, it's funny because I don't think that the first, even three or four times that I got arrested, I didn't think it was a big deal. And I think that a lot of people would assume that I would have, but one context of like the town I was in, lots of people got arrested. It wasn't like a novel thing. The people I hung out with got arrested. Wasn't a novel thing. Some of them had been to jail or prison. So it wasn't weird based on the people I hung out with. And then I think even further to that point, I had no, I, I think there's this shift that happens when you're in your early 20s. And I can't, I don't know anything about the science of it, but all I know is that until a certain point in my life, I felt invincible. I felt like I could do things. I could drive drunk. I could drink. I could act all sorts of ways and I wouldn't have to bear the consequences that others would. And I think that, I know that there's um, a saying in the army where they say it's like the best friend syndrome or something to that degree. I would have to look it up. And basically what it is is that they ask everyone that joins the army, are you afraid of dying? And they say, no, I'm not afraid of dying, but I'm worried Jimmy, my best friend, is going to die. Well, interview all the people that come to the army. Literally everyone's worried about their friend and not themselves. And what are the stats? Some of them are going to die. And I think that the same went for me at that point in my life, which was like, oh, I understand where this is going, but that won't be me. I'm not going to be one of those people. I'm not actually going to end up getting put in jail. I'm not actually going to end up drinking myself to death. I'm not actually going to end up with any of those things. And it wasn't until my dad, on my sixth arrest, I woke up at my parents' house and my father was waiting downstairs for me, which was like the worst, one of the most sickening moments of my life to wake up there where I didn't live, have a ticket next to me of my arrest, and then have to walk downstairs to confront them. It was just like opening the door to walk down was like, I can still feel how I felt in that moment. It was awful. And I remember thinking that he was going to like come down on me, tell me how awful I am. He doesn't want to talk to me again, whatever. And I was prepared for that. But what I wasn't prepared for was that I walked down and he was sitting on the couch with my stepmother. And he looked at me and he just looked sad. And he said, I'm not going to try and control you. I'm not going to try and threaten you. I'm not going to try and do anything. I just wanted to let you know that I am worried if you continue to do this, that you're going to kill yourself. And it was like in that moment, the fact that he thought that that, that would happen to me, it was just baffling. And that was what, in my mind, that was the thing that, made me like, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't drink. My father is like the, the nicest person. He came here from Iran. He started this family. He's only done anything to try and make my life better. He tried to get me out of my mom's house. Like everything that he's done for me, he's been a fantastic father. And to feel like I put him in a situation where he's worried that I'm going to kill myself. And I respect my dad's opinion. It was the moment that I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like I can't drink like this. I can't keep getting arrested. Like I can't keep around. And the weird thing is that I think during the time I was, I knew that wouldn't be the rest of my life. I was like, I know me. I'm not going to keep doing this forever. But I think that, you know, a lot of people say that to themselves and then they end up 20 years later. 
they're still saying, I'll turn it around in a day or two. And I realize that that's a really poisonous thing to think is like you, you think, oh, I'm going to eventually do it. It's like, why isn't eventually just today? If you're going to do it eventually, you might as well do it now. Take away where you are now. And if you delivered me a story before your dad said that, you know, given the history of your family, six arrests, like what the story ends differently. Like without your dad coming in and saying that, like, I think you're right. Like I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. Kick it down the can far enough down the road. And yeah, it does maybe end where your dad said it would. Like, do you think that could have been a reality? I, 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 for me, it's if you didn't have a role model, model like your father, like what, what did the situation look like? I think my dad has been the anchor for me many times in my life. After I moved out of my mom's house, I moved in with my dad and I was very angry. Like, I think very angry. And I don't think that's like a, an emotion that I think a lot of girls get sad, but I was angry and like raging at all points in times at everybody. And my dad was so empathetic and so patient with me. And he was, I, in many ways, I think he was the reason I was able to stop acting that way because it was like, no matter what, he didn't let me skip any commitments I had. He was like, you're still gonna do all these things. It doesn't matter what's going on with your mother. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter all this. Like you've got to stick with your commitments. So to that degree, I think he anchored me a lot at that age. And then I think as I got older, you know, when I was spiraling, drinking all the time and doing drugs, having him say that again, it's not like it was something I didn't know, but I think sometimes having somebody from the outside say it is much more powerful, especially in those moments where you're convincing yourself otherwise. And I think that that's what my dad has done for me so many times in my life is he's kind of pulled it, he has just provided me with a mirror at which to accurately see myself. And you know, I don't know if anyone else would have done that because I think that what I was doing was not abnormal for the people around me, but it was for him. And I think that that's why I'm so grateful for him because my whole life he's been that. He's just been the anchor. I think there's been so much fluctuation. Life changes so much. There's all these things. Even my dad, you know, one day he won't be here. But while he is, he is a complete rock for me. And I think he's also inspired me to do that for other people. Is there a particular moment or story that would encapsulate or describe your dad to, to somebody else? Yeah, I don't even know why I'm crying, but um, I remember when I moved out of my mom's house and in with my dad, I was so anxious and I was so um, scared, mad, whatever. I felt so weird because I, I moved in with him. He was now married and then they had her kids in the house and then it was just me. And I felt so out of place. Like I felt like I left my mom's house, which wasn't safe and such, but I at least felt like that was my home I grew up in. It was people I knew. I moved in with my dad and I felt so much unfamiliarity. You know, I hadn't been as close with him growing up as I had been with my mother. So it felt weird at first. You know, he wasn't at that point, I wouldn't have considered my dad the rock I do now. It became that after I moved in with him. But I remember I told him I didn't feel like it felt like home. And I would like lay awake at night feeling like this isn't my house. I feel scared. I feel uncomfortable. And I remember one day I came home 
And my dad had, had been looking and I think we were at a store and I saw this furniture set and it was, you have to think I'm 15, a, a girl at the time. And it had this beautiful white crested vanity and bed and dresser. And it was so beautiful. And I remember I was like, oh my gosh, this is so pretty. It's so beautiful. But it was so expensive, you know, and I wasn't thinking I would ever get furniture. Anyways, we always had hand-me-down stuff. We never got like new stuff. And I remember I came home one day and I walked into my room and it was all the furniture that I'd seen at the store. And my dad looked at me and he was like, you know, you, you deserve everything. Like, I want you to feel comfortable here. I want you to feel safe and at home. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I just don't deserve you as a father because I was so angry. And it's so funny because I broke down in tears because I felt so undeserving of that furniture. I couldn't even fathom that my dad spent that much money on it for me, who was acting like a complete But that's who he is. He's the guy that shows up when you're acting like a complete and he's there to be like, but you're not. Like, this isn't who you are and you're gonna get back on track. And he's unwavering in that instance. Like, no matter how I'm feeling, my dad doesn't change how he shows up. And I think that that's why I consider him to be a rock. And that's what I think that I have been able to emulate for others, which is like, no matter how angry somebody is, no matter how sad they are, no matter how depressed, no matter, I won't waver. And therefore, they can rely on me. Because how they feel isn't going to change how I show up. And I think that was like the best gift he could have given me. Because to this day, he does that. That's so wonderful as well, because what your dad did has impacted thousands and thousands of people through yourself as well. And it, this is like everything that we do, we genuinely like push this message of inspire change and it's through action, you know, it's through action and, and, and actually doing something like what your father did, you know, of course he's going to be there for you. It's such a wonderful moment as well, but him doing that and installing that in you has sort of installed the same belief system for, for you to be there for other people. Yeah. And it's had such an impact and it's so, it spreads so much. I think it's so important that pe people don't realize that you don't have to have a million followers on Instagram to really impact the world or change somebody's life. Like it happens as everybody, like everybody is a part of that. I think it's so beautiful. Mm -hmm.